Susie and the Banshees there. This wheel's on fire. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, our guest, Yvonne Sillett. And we also chat with Morgan Carter. But we do have Yvonne Sillett on the line. Yvonne, welcome to the show. Thank you, James. Really great to have you on board. You're one of the people that features in Defending with Pride, which is an exhibition of our people who have served in the Australian Defence Forces over the years who are LGBTQ identifying. I know it's been controversial, but yours is an amazing story and we don't want to overshadow the personal stories of the people involved in this wonderful exhibition. Tell us all about it. Okay, um, just briefly uh, about me. I joined at 18. I didn't realise I was gay. Anyway, 23, I was gay and I was in the army and there was a policy. And the policy in place at the time was a ban on homosexuals. Um, and at that stage, I was 23 and we're talking 1983. So um, it was a very difficult time for, for most of us just in the general community at that stage, let alone in the army. And not only when I was in the army... Um, I was in the army with the ban. I also had a top secret clearance because of the Corps of Signals, which I was um, posted to at the time. And unfortunately, because I got caught out, they followed us. They um, they they took photos. They interrogated us. They um, said to me, "Well, we can't have you in the army anymore because you're a lesbian." Um, so I lost my career, which I had wanted to do all my life. I I didn't have a plan B. I, I joined at eighteen. I was following. In my parents' footsteps, they were both Navy. Um, and at the 10-year mark, they said, no, sorry, you're a lesbian, we can't have you. So I discharged after 10 years, um, which was absolutely shattering for me because, like I said, it was a childhood dream. Um, many, many years later, I'm an advocate um, for those LGBTI members that did serve and were treated in, a, I guess, a similar vein to myself. Um, and only last year I got a phone call from the Shrine asking if I would like to be part of this exhibition. Um, and what a, mon- what a monumental place to have your story told in, in the Shrine of Remembrance here in Melbourne. Absolutely, um, absolutely. Yeah. You also co-founded the Discharged LGBTI Veterans Association. So you did something incredibly empowering with that trauma and with that huge um, injustice that was hurled at you by the Australian Defence Force. Yeah, absolutely. And I live in Dalesford and Dalesford's just, well, we all know Dalesford in the gay community. Um, I, I live in Dalesford and just so happened, there was another guy up here called Danny Liversidge and Danny was in the Air Force and he virtually, after three years, um, they produced photos of him being in a gay bar and, and he was immediately discharged. And Danny and I met up several years ago in Dalesford and we decided that, hey, there's two of us in Dalesford. There must be many more people in the same situation. So yeah, we got together and we Discharge Lesbian Gay Veterans Association, and we're there now to reach out to anybody um, that think they're alone. And it's only this week I had a, a young ex-soldier contact us through our organisation saying, oh, my goodness, I thought I was the only one. You know, so we're out there now to... And, and the exposure that we've had, although there was some negative exposure last week, you know, with the rainbow lights, um, the we had the pride flag flying last Sunday afternoon at the last post, and the exhibition there runs for a year. And um, yeah, and I'm I'm one of four people that um, on a video when you walk in, there's a, a video screen, and and um, and we're telling our story. And there's a lot of other 
stories to be told at the exhibition. What do you make of the controversy? I mean, the, the shrine is clearly, you know, trying to take the lead and trying to heal those wounds of those huge injustices that Queer Defence Force members were, you know, subjected to for, 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 for decades. And then this controversy blows up over the rainbow lights being shone on the uh, shrine's colonnades. Uh, it just seems to be a slap in the face for those people who are brave enough to feature in the exhibition uh, and oh, also for queer people who are currently serving. What do you make of it all? <laughs> what do I make of it? Last, I was ecstatic. I was so excited that this was going to take place and I was telling everyone the last post and the rainbow lights are going to be on at the shrine, you know, finally our service is being recognised, we've been underrepresented, um, you know, we served our country and I didn't go and fight in war, thank goodness, but I, I would have if I had to, you know, and I'm sure people aren't going to turn around and say, we don't want you to fight this war because you're a lesbian. Um, so I was over the moon that we were being finally represented, um, not just in the exhibition, but, but having the rainbow lights. And uh, it was Saturday afternoon, I was sitting and I was reading um, I was reading social media and that's when I first saw that the RSL had deci- and the Shrine had decided, um, due to the threats the staff had been receiving, and Neil Mitchell didn't help on the Wednesday um, with his radio show. And I have let Neil know what I thought too. But anyway, that's another story. Um, I was ropeable. I was really, I was devastated. Um, and shortly after that, I, I got a phone call from Channel 9 and The Age saying, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts? So I was interviewed immediately. And um, and I think my frustration and anger came out <laughs> during the interview. Um, but then I thought about it and I thought, this is fantastic exposure for our exhibition. You know, this is exposure that, you know, free publicity, if you like, that, that we we wouldn't have got. So, yeah, I, I was devastated. Um, but then I thought, hey, they got the, the the pride flag was flying, and and for the first and only time, and this exhibition is going to have thousands of people, you know, come through in the next twelve months. So, initially, I was devastated with the lights, um, especially when they've had them for. You know, the Japanese Japanese Prime Minister recently, the Queen's Jubilee. So when they turn around and say, you know, um, we can't do that, well, they have done it in the past. So, yeah, we did take it personally, the LGBTI veterans, um, but we, we were... We were above that and we thought, well, our exhibition's still going, so our story still will be told. And absolutely thousands of people that wouldn't have, you know, had their ears pricked up about the exhibition now know about it. And you're going to give some thought to not only the incredible images uh, and stories, but also the plights of, of queer service people and those injustices and those incredible stories of empowerment like yours uh, in overcoming it all. Oh, absolutely. You know, I think... Um, There'll be a lot of the general community wandering through the shrine, not even knowing possibly that this exhibition's on, unless we've been under a rock now with the publicity we've had. But, you know, they will go in there not even having a clue. There's a lot of people in this world, um, and it's generally the younger generation, that are blown, about, blown away by the way I was treated and, and, and we were treated because of a policy. We lost our, our job. We lost our career. Um, my friend Danny was homeless because they marched him off base and said, see ya, we don't want you here. You know, so there are many stories to be told. And, and I don't think people really, the general public, um, the straight community, let's say, um, really have any idea that this actually happened. And it happened in our lifetime. Um, so I'm very passionate about it. I'm an advocate, as you know, as, as we spoke about, and, um, and I'll fight for justice, um, for an apology, 
and and I spoke at the Royal Commission earlier this year into defence and veteran suicide, and um, and only yesterday um, it looks like we're, we're going to finally be getting an apology from the government. So that's in the review at the moment for the Royal Commission. Um, and that's what I'm fighting for, is an apology for the way we were treated, for serving our country, and then for being ourselves. You know, I was a professional soldier. I, I, I was a professional soldier by day, if you like, and on my weekends and private time, I, you know, I dated women, but it had no impact on my service or the work that I did. It begs belief there hasn't been an apology already. Uh, what can you tell us about the overtures that have been made that have led you to believe this this apology will happen? Well, I don't know if you've heard of Noah Reisman. Noah, Noah is a historian and he's a professor and he's at the Australian Catholic University. And Noah is um, the historian that put me on this path of advocacy, if you like. Um, there's a book titled Serving in Silence, and he's the co-author of that book, and there's 14 stories of people like myself. Um, Noah um, gave evidence yesterday at the Royal Commission, and he gave out his recommendations to the Royal Commission. He's not ex-serving. He's just someone on our side that believes that, you know, there's justice to be had. And so he gave his recommendations to the Royal Commission yesterday, um, just saying that it's the, his recommendations are that one, the Chief of Defence Force, and two, um, the the government apologise for the way we were treated. Not dissimilar to you know the other apologies that the you know the apologies we've had from other politicians over the years. And I think now, I think the thing we have on our side or in our favour is that there's been a change in government. Um, so uh, I'm really hopeful that, that that will happen in the near future. <laughs> so as yet, we haven't heard anything in relation to the apology from Richard Miles, the Defence Minister, or indeed the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese? No, no, nothing at all. Nothing yet. But I think this... My, myself and Danny, um, we have been writing some letters from our little our little association to some of the new MPs. Penny Wong is one, for example, um, and we haven't heard anything back. But what I'm thinking is once the Royal Commission um, do their mid-year um, review, which is actually next week, I, I think something will come out of that. I, I read today that the Royal Commission's mid-year review um, will be coming out next week and there's some actions there that will be prioritised. And I know that when I spoke at the Royal Commission and Danny Liversidge spoke at the Royal Commission back in February and then Noah speaking about the LGBTIQ yesterday at the Royal Commission, I, I really believe that it's not far away and, um, and I've been pushing for this for a long time. So I, I, I think and I hope um, that we do get an apology um, in the near future. And it's really inspiring that the hoo-ha over the colonnades, the rainbow lights, you know, hasn't intimidated you and other, others into, into seeking that apology uh, and, and working with people like Noah Reisman, a wonderful historian, into seeking it and, and pushing politicians and the head of the ADF to deliver it. Oh, look, I, I haven't taken a step backwards since the day that Noah and Sherlene Robinson, co-author of the book, interviewed me in 2016. It, it's quite ironic that um, I retired only last year and, and it's been my passion. It's been my purpose. You know, initially it was getting organised for the Royal Commission and then, oh, first of all, it was our little association, the LVA, and then it became the Royal Commission and now it's been the... Um, uh, defending with card exhibition, you know, I, I, I've really just been, it's like my full-time job, but I love it. It's my passion. It's, and, and, and like I said, um, 
I'm a voice for many. Me speaking at the Royal Commission, I had so many people reach out to me saying, that happened to me, thank you, thank you. So I really believe now that I'm the voice, I'm the, I'm, I'm the spokesperson or one of, and, uh, and Danny Liversidge and I, um, we're going to fight to the end um, for an apology. And, you know, a little bit of compensation wouldn't go astray either. You know, we both lost our careers um, just due to our sexuality. And of course, you know, the experiences that you had were, were commonplace when, when LGBTQ, you know, service personnel got found out. You know, it wasn't like what happened to you was something that was unusual. It was what the, it was what the army did. It was what the ADF did when they found out queer folks in their, in their ranks. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and that's the book, Serving in Silence. Like I said, I think um, Noah Reisman, Shirlene Robinson interviewed 140 people and um, around Australia, ex and current serving LGBTI um, veterans or, or serving members. And, and that's when they wrote the book, Serving in Silence, followed up by an exhibition, Serving in Silence, followed by a book titled Pride in Defence. You know, so... So Noah Reisman has been um, a, a, a crucial part of this of this whole journey, and um, and I've just really taken a lead from him now. And like I said, he's not even serving; he, he never served, but he's just fighting for, for for the rights of 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 our community and 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 the minority groups, if you like. So so it was RSL Victoria, you know, last week made that comment after the Neil Mitchell show saying, oh, I'm happy that the lights are cancelled. Well, I immediately contacted RSL Victoria and told them what I thought <laughs> and um, and pop over to the exhibition and then you'll see why the lights on the colonnades meant so much to us. Absolutely. Now, you, I don't want to dwell on Neil Mitchell, but um, you did write to him. You did let him know what, what you think. Uh, the shock jock, has he responded at all? No, he hasn't. In fact, last Saturday when I first, when I first read it, I because um, I'd heard about the, the interview on, on the Wednesday, and on the Saturday when I saw that the lights had been cancelled, I immediately emailed him. But my opening line was, I don't expect a response. I don't want to hear back from you, but I want to tell you what this meant to me and how you've just ripped my heart out. Um, that was on the Saturday. And then on the Sunday evening after we'd had our successful launch of the opening and the pride flag and the last post, I wrote him another email pretty much saying, well, you know, We'll still win. The, the exhibition's still going on, and I, I do implore you to pop over and have a look at it. But no, I haven't heard back from him. It'd be nice if he supported the apology, wouldn't it? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And the RSL as well. Um, I take it they haven't responded to your to your email either. Yes, yes. I, I actually had communication with the CEO of the RSL, <laughs> um, and um, and pretty much said I was disappointed in in what how the president. Um, um, made that comment on 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 the radio, and the, the sad thing was, you know, I have a wife and I have two boys from a previous relationship, and they were there on Sunday, so my family were there, and yet the president of the RSL makes a comment: "Oh, we can't have the rainbow lights; it's a family place." Oh my goodness! Well, I just saw red, as you can imagine. I thought, yes, it is a family place, and I'm here with my wife and my two sons. So, you know. These people are old school and we just have to educate them a bit. So my next journey is to um, help the RSL um, learn to understand and appreciate um, the, the contemporary veterans coming through. So watch out.
<laughs> Absolutely. And good on you as well. And and they, they really do need to kind of, you know, take a bit of a look at themselves, don't they? And go, well, actually, you know, there are there are queer families within mm-hmm. within their ranks that they're hurting through their mm-hmm. through their, their comments. Yeah, exactly right. And that's what the CEO said to me. We we are so sorry that we have hurt you all over again. And I said, Absolutely you have. So yeah, uh, I'm looking now for an apology. <laughs> From RSL, I'm looking for apology from hopefully Albanese would be nice. The chief of defence force would be nice. Um, so yeah, I'll, and I'll continue um, on this journey and until those apologies come through. Absolutely, of course. Uh, the exhibition "Defending with Pride" uh, is a collaboration with 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 plenty of people, but one of them is the Australian Queer Archives. Tell us about that collaboration. Um, yeah, we we work closely with them. Danny and I work closely with them last year. Um, you've, you've heard of Chill Out, obviously. Um, we, uh, and Noah Reisman and Shalene Robinson, after the book Serving in Silence was released, they then released an exhibition. And the exhibition was called um, Serving in Silence. And that was at midsummer down in Melbourne. And then Danny and I thought, mm, we've got a grant from our little association. Let's bring the exhibition to Dalesford. So we did. We brought it to, to the Convent Gallery in Dalesford um, for Chill Out last year. And rather than just let it run for, for the two weeks, the owner of, of the convent, Tina, said, no, this story needs to be told. And, and so that was my association with the Queer Archives. I, I got very close to um, with Angela and Nick, and, um, and, and they helped us so much. And not only did we have the, um, the information that, that Noah Rison had been using in his Serving in Silence exhibition, they also gave us some of their own, own stuff too, like, letters from lovers back in World War One and stuff like that, you know. So it was just amazing. So the Queer Archives um, are, are very generous in, in their support. Um, well, they were for me, for my exhibition, as they are now with the, the Shrines Defending with Pride exhibition. So I, 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 I can't... I mean, you know, I'm in it. Of course I want people to go and see it. Um, but I think people just need to go and, and I think it'll open a lot of eyes to, to the way that we were treated. And, and I'm talking only in the 80s. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, tell us about some of the other people that, that feature in the exhibition. Okay, well, there's myself, um, and then we have um, a group captain who's currently serving. So that's really interesting. He's, um, he's quite senior in the Air Force. He's been in for 35 years, and he's never had a problem. <laughs> um, then we've got an older, older man. He's uh, David Bradford. He served in Vietnam as, as a doctor, and we're talking in the 60s, I believe. Um, and then there's Felix. Now, Felix is a trans, um, trans gentleman that, um, that served as a female in, in the army. And Felix is there telling his story too. So it's fabulous that the four of us are all like um, on a loop, if you like. And, and you walk in there and you just see us as if we're sitting, sitting there telling our stories to you. Um, it's quite amazing. And it's wonderful you feature David Bradford, Dr. David Bradford, who I was actually chatting with, believe it or not, earlier this week via Facebook. Of course, uh, he was a GP that did so much for the community, working with people with HIV AIDS in the 80s and 90s, uh, and a true trailblazer in the medical profession for our community. That's right, because he was a doctor over in Vietnam. That's right, exactly. I haven't actually met him, you know. Um, every time we went in for the filming, we filmed on different days and stuff like that. So I haven't actually met him face to face, but um, Noah has told me that he's a wonderful person. Yeah. It sounds like a really professional exhibition. You've got uh, all kinds of multimedia. Oh, yeah, ab- absolutely. 
and, and, and that's the main thing. So you sort of walk in and, 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 and the rainbow colours are there, which is just fabulous, which is so different for, you know, the shrines can be a little dark and, and it's a peaceful quiet. Well, it's peaceful quiet anyway. I mean, it's not like we're having a party in there, but with the rainbow lights there, it just really stands out and um, and you walk in and you have the big screens, like I said, and then you just go around the room and you just read the stories um, of 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 veterans from 1945 to current day, you know. So it's it's not just happened in the 80s to me. And I guess for me, getting back to, to my story, I guess my fight is because if we at that time discharged every single lesbian that was serving in the ADF in the 80s, there wouldn't have been many people left. I was singled out. I was victimised. And um, I, I don't know why that was. My partner and I at the time, um, we were singled out. We've probably, we were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. We could have been at another posting in another unit in, in Australia or elsewhere and it would have been fine. But it was the witch hunt era, as they call it, and um, it was wrong place, wrong time. And I think for me that's why I feel so angry that, yes, there was a policy in place where you have to treat us all the same. You can't single people out. Um, so, so that's sort of why I am so adamant to, to get justice here. Has the ADF got its uh, act together or does uh, homophobia, queerphobia, transphobia, is it still rife in the ADF? Look, I can only speak from what I hear, obviously, because um, the ban was lifted in 92. Um, however, I was just talking about this young lady that reached out to me this week. She served from 95 to 2008 and um, she said she had a terrible time. She now suffers mental illness. Um, she was bullied for her sexuality. Um, so I'm going to say there's still a lot of education to, to go. And I guess it's, I look at it a bit like the RSL. You know, once we have, and I call them the style pale males, um, you know, that, that are in the RSL um, space. And I look at the senior officers in the military. And I think once we... They all move on, if you know what I'm saying, and and this younger generation comes through. I think things will change, um, but I think no, I think there's still a. I think depending on the unit that you're at, again, wrong place, wrong time for me. You might just have a boss that is is homophobic. So unfortunately, that's bad luck. That's the way you get treated. Even though we are 2022, and um, Mick Jansen that I just spoke about, current serving Air Force, he's got in. He's been in 35 years and he said he's never, never, ever had an issue with it. So it really does depend on where you are and who your superiors are. Well, there's some fabulous stories in Defending with Pride. It is an amazing exhibition. It's running at Melbourne Shrine of Remembrance until July 2023. Yvonne Sillett, thank you so much for chatting with me today on 3CR. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, James. Thank you very much for hearing our story. It's been great chatting. Cheers. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Yvonne Sillett there. You are on In Your Face on 3CR. Here's Edda James.
G'day there. Cherry pie, you are a new face on 3CR with James. Well, IFAS is a queer opera presented by Lyric Opera and Theatre Works here in Melbourne. On the line we have soprano Morgan Carter. Morgan, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks James. It's good to be here. Great to chat with you. It's an exciting opera. Uh, It's a groundbreaking opera and it explores gender and love. Tell us all about it. Of course. So I'm playing the lead role of Iphis. Um, the story is based on Metamorphosis, which is a Greek mythology tale. Um, Iphis is forced to grow up as a boy due to an overbearing father. Um, he only wants to have sons. And then, of course, years later, that all unravels as Iphis is presented with a bride, my love interest, Ianthe, who is played by Brianna Stewart. Um, yes, we fall madly in love. And yeah. It sounds like you have a lot of fun, Morgan. I sure do. It's a very, it's an interesting role to play. I've, um, I used to be a mezzo, so I used to play a lot of pants roles. Used to dress up as a boy quite a lot, but I've never played a a woman pretending to be a man. <laughs> it's going to be very interesting. And of course, a really exciting role for a for a, a, a non-binary soprano as well. Yes, definitely. No, the idea of playing with gender through my art form is. It's always been fun to me, so this is a really great role for me. So tell us how you ended up in this role. What's the backstory? Oh, my God. So that was very interesting. I'm about to leave the country for um, just to do some studies in the UK, and before I went, I was like, oh, I want to do a role. I was already engaged to sing chorus in a production, but I ended up emailing uh, Suzanne Shaundy, who is um, on the board for Lyric Opera, and basically said, hey, I'm available. Do you have anything in mind? Is there anything available? And she's like, oh, I didn't know you were still in the country. Of course, there's something available. <laughs> so here I am playing Ibis. <laughs> so tell us about your journey as a soprano. Like, how did you end up being an opera singer? Absolutely. So when I was younger, I always, I was always in choirs. I was always performing. I was a ballet dancer for 16 years. It was always, I wanted to be on stage. I obviously didn't mind how that happened. I got to the age of 16 and I just decided that I, I wanted my own hips by the time I was 30, so I gave up ballet because it's very destructive for your body and started taking singing more seriously. I got into the Sydney Conservatorium, I sang with Sydney Philharmonia choirs and straight out of uni I toured, toured a couple of countries, toured China, toured Italy, toured Germany, just singing, doing shows. Fantastic. And it must be so exciting being involved with Lyric Opera here in Melbourne because they do have a, a, a really strong commitment to queerness and uh, and gender non-conforming folks and, and women in opera as well. Yes, absolutely. So IFAS, of course, is written by Elena Katz-Chernan, who's one of the um, most amazing Australian female composers of our generation. Um, and yeah, working with Lyric has been probably one of the best experiences I've had with any opera company in terms of gender affirming and it'll just little things. Like the first rehearsal, we were asked our pronouns and it's just it's very wholesome to be in an environment where it's accepted because it's not always the case in opera. Wow, that does sound incredibly affirming. <laughs> yeah. So, so tell us how you're interpreting this role. I mean, do you find that you and the director kind of um, are coming up with things as you work with your with with your with your co-star, uh, having you all together, like during rehearsals? Has that kind of meant that you kind of come up with interpretations that perhaps even the director hadn't envisaged? 
Yeah, no, so Katie Maudlin is the director for this production and she's a fabulous director to work with. It's very collaborative. A lot of suggestions that we make do end up being in the final print, which is nice. In saying that, we are very early in our production stages at the moment. We do have a full weekend of rehearsals uh, this weekend, which is going to be staging the entire show. So far, we've only done a couple of scenes, including my lovemaking scene with Ayansi and um, just when I find out that wait, I can't marry her because I'm a woman, but I have to try and tell my dad, no, I can't marry her. It's, it's, it's a fun offer to be a part of, and definitely the directing journey is, is very massive, and I love working with everyone, seeing everyone work, being in the same room. It's, it's great to be back in a rehearsal studio, put it that way. So it sounds like it's quite intensive up up from now until you open on the 26th of August. Uh, three weeks away, it sounds like it's going to be a really intense three weeks. Yeah, no, absolutely. So our plan so far is to have the entire opera stage by the end of Sunday, <laughs> which I think is a realistic goal. We're doing really well. Um, 16, 70 minutes, so it's a, a short little chamber work. And yeah, once, once it's all staged, it's just finessing running through things, um, yeah, just making sure everyone's comfortable and all of that. It sounds like a very modern opera. It sounds like it's kind of not constrained by... By, by stuff. It sounds like it's really trying and really succeeding at being groundbreaking and smashing yeah. through some ceilings. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the opera is written in such an interesting way, as is um, Kat Sternan's work. It takes inspiration from all of these other things, including cabaret, including like tangos and all of that different musical themes throughout the production. But then, of course, the subject matter of the work it was groundbreaking when it was written because it was written in 1997. Can you imagine going and seeing an opera with queer representation in 1997 in Australia? Because I, <laughs> even now, some people will be like, oh, that's a bit risky, but here we are. We're doing it anyway. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, the word queer wasn't particularly in the, in the community's vernacular. It was kind of, you know, considered to be pretty risque back in the 90s. Exactly. And so this opera sounds incredibly groundbreaking, even for today. You mentioned that it's written in a really interesting way. Tell us more about that. Uh, yeah, it's just um, the, when Elena Katz-Chernan wrote the piece, she was, she was working in King Street in cabaret bars and all these kind of speakeasy venues. And so she takes a lot of inspiration from things that um, she would have been exposed to at the time. And that includes, um, you know, modern composers like Kurt Vile and all of those kind of um, atonal, yeah, atonal composers. So it's just, it's just, it streams through a lot of different genres and that goes with the subject matter at, at, during... Yeah, when the story's being told. So it's fantastic. To, once it all comes together, it's great. <laughs> so how do you physically prepare for a role like this as an opera singer, as a soprano? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, the biggest thing, of course, is memorising the words. I do have the most stage time, which means a lot of words. Um, I have an entire scene where I'm... It's my education, which is it's such an important scene because as a woman, of course, in the time period in Greek mythology, you wouldn't have been given an education. So it's a really important scene for Isis and showing, you know, his youth. Um, but yeah, memorizing, <laughs> I have to memorize the periodic table. I have to memorize 10 rabbis of the Talmud, all these things that I would never have been 
<laughs> exposed to before this offer. And it's one of those quirky things that I just think one day someone's going to ask me that in trivia and I'm going to know it. But yeah, yeah so the biggest thing, I know, right? Biggest thing is just memorizing words and obviously preparing myself in terms of acting. Because as I said, playing a girl who's pretending to be a boy, that's huge. It's not something that I've ever seen in an offer before, and I don't think I'll encounter it again anytime soon. So, yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Uh, truly yeah. groundbreaking. Um, gee, it's it's a real multitasking performance for you, isn't it? You've got to you've got to sing, you've got to act, and it sounds very physical. Oh, absolutely, yes, um, yeah. And our set, it's but we've got a giant bed that we have to climb up and down of quite frequently. It's <laughs> so physically demanding and mentally demanding, of course. But that's just the life of an opera singer, really. We're triple threats. <laughs> and it's great that you're a non-binary opera singer as well. There can't be that many opera singers that identify as non-binary. But I'm sure with you being such a trailblazer, especially in this role, we'll see quite a few more over the years come out. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's just, I was inspired by one of my friends who's an opera singer who's also non-binary to come out. And I actually found out while I was, doing a, a show, like I, I came to the realisation because I was actually playing a trans woman in an opera in 2020 and a lot of the experience that my character went through, I'm like, hold on, wait a second, <laughs> this is relevant to me. So it was this whole kind of opera made me realise I was non-binary and just being able to come out in such a way that can affect other people, can inspire other people as well. It's, it's a very powerful position to be in, especially as a young opera singer that's being so welcomed into into the operatic world as a non-binary artist. So tell us about the trans role you played. I mean, it sounds like it had a huge impact yeah. on you. Oh, absolutely. It was an American opera written by Laura Kaminsky. It, it was, it's called As One, and it follows. it's a two-person opera, so it follows the story of Hannah, who is obviously a trans woman, but there's two characters are a male and female, Hannah before and Hannah after. So obviously the whole story goes through the transitionary stage of being a trans woman in modern society, all of the ups and downs, going through education, sex education specifically, going through um, your first kiss, your first love, um, the first time getting a, a, like physically assaulted for who you are. It's a very powerful piece. Again, it's a it's a new work, and it was um, I, don't, I don't know when it was written. I think it was 2011 from memory. But yeah, so very new, very groundbreaking, and it's still performed to this day in America very frequently. So that's good. <laughs> and I love your passion for gender non-conforming roles in opera. It sounds like this is a journey that you're going on as an opera singer. Yeah, absolutely. I obviously didn't intend for this to happen. It just I just kind of fell into it, which is, it's great. It's a really good feeling to be able to represent who I am through my art form. It just, it's like an extra level of, oh, this is really home for me, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, I just, I just feel like this is an incredibly intense role—a uh, uh, physically intense one, emotionally, vocally. What's it going to be like for you when it's over? And um, what's it going to segue into? What are some other roles you have planned? Oh yeah, no. Um, I after every show, there's always the coming down period where you're like, oh my god, I miss it. I miss being in rehearsals and all of that. But um, I've scheduled this in a way that after closing night I leave the country in seven days so I am moving to the UK to study my master's in opera performance at the Royal Northern College of Music 
So I don't have any roles per se planned, but I do have a lot of studying to do <laughs> because I'm doing my master's in one year, which is not very typical. It's typically a two-year course. So see how we go. See what roles we get when we get over there. <laughs> and no time either to kind of get those post, you know, performance blues because I mean you'll be you'll be upwards onwards doing exactly. your masters, moving Just countries. So yeah. yeah <laughs> wow. Wow. It sounds incredibly energizing. What an exciting time for you as a performer and, and as an artist. <laughs> yeah. No. Definitely. Definitely. It's really. It's really um overwhelming actually. Just because of well, we've obviously been closed down for two years. I've lost probably eight roles in the last few years thanks to lockdowns but it's a really good time right now just to be excited for the future and it sounds like there's a, a really great vibe happening right now around lyric opera you know considering all of those all of those factors you just mentioned it sounds like you know rehearsals must be really energized and there must be great morale around this production oh it sure is and everyone's just a an absolute treat to work with and everyone's so excited just to finally be back because it's been so long. I think their last show was in 20, 2019, so it's been a, it's been a while. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Morgan Carter, it's been wonderful chatting. Give us those details so people can rock along to IFAS. Absolutely. So IFAS is showing opening night as the 26th of August and closing night will be the 3rd of September. We're performing at Theatreworks in St Kilda. Fantastic. Well, look, best of luck with the production uh, and best of luck with your masters. And thank you so much for chatting with me today on 3CR. Yeah, no, thanks so much, James. It was a pleasure. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Morgan Carter there. I am out of here. Jacob is up next with a Friday rave. Taking us out is Paddy Smith. And we'll catch you next week on In Your Face. Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. Milton, pot of thieves, wild cord of my sleeve, thick heart of stone. My sins, my own, they belong to me. Me. Say beware But I don't care The words are just Rules and regulations To me Me
Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook. <laughs> 